God has really blessed us with some talented musicians that we take for granted probably a lot of weeks, but they sacrifice and serve week after week to lead us in worship. Thank you guys. Appreciate that. You know, as Brian was talking about earlier, it's, what's cool to me is that it's the heart of the people who serve. And it, it's very much like the rest of our church family. I look around the Christmas trees on either side, and I see all of the gifts that have been brought in for Highland City Elementary. And it's an amazing picture of how you are serving in the community. But what's really cool to me is it's not just the gifts. Because, I mean, you look and there's, just, there's gifts piled up all around the Christmas trees. There's new bikes. There's all these things. But it's not about the gifts. It's about offering hope to a community. And, you know, it's, it's cool because I've been involved in, in Angel Tree. We've been doing this for several years. I even did it for several years at uh, Epic before we became church or before we became TBA Church. And uh, so I've been doing this a long time. But this year is a little different because I have personal connection with a lot of the families at, at Highland City Elementary. My wife is teaching there now. I've got three little girls who go to school there. I've been volunteering, doing some of the tutoring things that we talked to you about. And it's been cool to meet some of the families, meet some of the kids that these gifts are going to, and to see the backgrounds that they come from, to see some of the things that they go through, and you realize that this isn't just a new bike, it isn't just some new toys. This truly is offering hope for these families. So I hope that if you were doing this, you had the opportunity to write a note of encouragement to the family, had a way to connect with them, but this is a wonderful showing of Jesus' hands and feet to the community around us. You know, we're continuing this morning in a series called The Making of a King. And a couple weeks ago, Dave started us off by talking about how Jesus went from prince to pauper. He left everything in heaven. He left his righteous kingdom, and he came to earth to walk among us to be man. And he painted a picture of everything that Jesus gave up to come to earth and really messed up that whole picture we have in our head of the pretty little manger scene where the precious little baby lays in the trough. You know, and we talked about how dirty and messy the barn was and how nasty the animals were that were surrounded and just kind of messed up our pretty picture of, of what we look at. And then last week, Brian Starverson talked to us, and it, it was really that journey of Jesus from, from, pauper, to, um, from pauper to criminal. And he, he ended by talking about the trial that Jesus went through. And he talked about leading up to the crucifixion, all of Jesus' life, how it was leading up to his death. And he talked specifically about the idea of peace and how Jesus brought peace to the world, but it didn't look like what we might have thought it looked like. And then this week we're talking about Jesus, the making of a king, and we're looking at him going from criminal to king. And what is that picture? And you know, for me, I I have this picture of a king in my mind, and so many times it doesn't seem to match up with all the little Sunday school stories I've heard about Jesus' birth and what he did here on earth. And so I want to explore that a little bit this morning. And if you will, we're going to start, actually where Stuyvesant left off last week, we're going to start in John chapter 18. If you have your Bibles with you or you have an app on your phone, you want to follow along. John chapter 18, starting with verse 28. We'll be looking at verses 28 through 37 here. This is the trial as Jesus stands before Pilate and he's being convicted. It says, Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. And then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. I love the sarcasm that you see here. I mean, they're talking to their governor here, and it's still sarcasm of, duh, that's why we brought him to you. And he says, then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied, and this fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way that he would die. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked him. 
And Jesus replied, Is this your own question, or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate retorted? Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate says, So you are a king? Or in NIV it says, So you're a king then? And it's again this sarcastic tone that's to it. It's this idea of he's already mocking him. So you're a king? And Jesus responded, You say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. Think about that a minute. If you were here last week, you remember Brian talking about how the angels came to the shepherds. And we usually tell a part of that story. And we talk about, they say, and peace and goodwill to all men. But we forget the part at the end where it talks about all men on whom God's favor rests. And this is a similar kind of saying here. I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. And all who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. We have this picture painted of Jesus being on trial. Jesus is on trial because he has set himself up to say, I am the Son of God. And he has proclaimed himself as king. And now he's on trial for that. And here are the religious leaders who are coming against him and saying, this is blasphemous. You can't possibly say that you're the Son of God. You can't claim kingship. They do not recognize him. They're blinded by their own by their own faults and by their own religion. But look at how it continues in in chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Jesus is mocked as a king. The amount of sarcasm that comes out, the ridicule that is coming out, he's given absolutely no respect, none whatsoever. So you're a king, and so they dress him up like a king and make fun of him, and all the time they beat him and whip him. There's no loyalty. Even his disciples are nowhere to be found. Just before this is where you read the account of Peter denying Christ three times. Here's Peter, the rock, the one who said, I will never deny you, Jesus, and he denies him three times. And where are they when all of this is happening? You don't see anything about them. And then you have these religious leaders bringing him to trial, blinded to who Christ is, caught up in their religion and their law to where they can't see a picture of who he is. And then it continues in verse 4. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. To me, this is one of the key phrases that we need to see. Here's Pilate bringing Jesus back before the crowd going, okay, you want to kill him? His blood is on your hands. You take him, you kill him, you do what you think is right. But I find no guilt. Here's the picture that is painted to show us that Jesus is the blameless, spotless lamb who is going to be sacrificed for our sin. He has done no wrong. He is the only man who has walked the earth without sinning. Fully God, fully man, never has sinned. And he stands before them blameless, being ready to, put to, death, to be put to death. And as the story continues, Jesus is taken away and he's crucified. The death of a criminal, hung on a cross, abused, beaten, a torturous style of death. And even in the midst of that death, he's mocked. They put a sign over his head, Hail, King of the Jews. They're still making fun of him, even as he is dying. 
making fun of him, making fun of the claims that have been made. As Jesus dies, we look at the end of the story, and I'm not going to walk you through the entire crucifixion because I know that you've heard that story and you know how horrific death on a cross was. But look at what happens at the end of the story, the end of chapter 19, starting with verse 38. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus, listen to that. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And with him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now think about what's happening in the story here. This, for me, is not the picture of a king. This is not what I think about when I think of a king. Maybe I'm just skewed by all the fairy tales that we see in the cartoons. And I've got three little girls, so we've watched all of the princess movies who have the amazing kings and the great daddy. You've all seen these. I'm sure you have kids, right? Am I the only one? Or are you all just asleep this morning? But the picture I have of a king is this, this great man, this man who commands respect, who demands loyalty, who you want to give your life in service to. He's someone who you look up to and you admire. And if the king dies, what you expect is this procession through the streets and you expect there to be all of the town mourning and all of the kingdom mourning his death. And what happens when Jesus dies? It's not quite that picture, is it? Joseph, a secret disciple, a guy who was scared to show his faith, a guy who was fearful of the Jewish leaders and wouldn't even stand up for what he believed in, wouldn't even stand up for the king. He comes and quietly takes the body of Jesus and wraps it and places it in a tomb. And it's this picture of almost being done in secret. Not quite the picture that I would think of as a king. And I pause here in the story and I reflect for a moment about what Jesus is, what he means to us. Here's Jesus who gave up everything in heaven, gave up his kingdom, gave up everything that was due him. And he came to earth in a very humble form. He came to earth among dirt and nastiness and all these animals that stunk and he was laid in a feeding trough. And it's not the pretty nativity scene that we think of. And then he lives a life before us for 33 years of perfection. He models what it looks like to serve God and love God in that time. He models that relationship for us. He teaches us how to pray. He teaches us how to have relationship. He teaches us how to serve others. He models ministry for us in such a perfect way. All the way to the point that he sacrifices his own life for us. Here is Jesus who is sinless, has done nothing wrong in 33 years of life on earth. Nothing. And he chooses to die so that you and I can go free and have relationship with God. And I go, that's an amazing story.
But if we stop here at this point in the story, it's worthless. It's irrelevant. Because the fact that Jesus lived and set that perfect example and the fact that he died for our sin is important, but what makes the difference and what establishes that relationship with God is the fact that he overcame death, the fact that he was raised from the dead. The resurrection makes all the difference in the world for the story. And see, so many times at Christmas, we get together and we celebrate the cute little birth of Jesus. And that's great. We need to celebrate his birth. But that birth is meaningless unless we understand what Christ went through, the sacrifice he made, and the resurrection that happened, and his power over death, and the way he showed that. See, it wasn't Jesus' birth that defeated Satan. I mean, if you stop and think about this, this is the biggest scandal in history. I mean, it was probably all over the tabloids in in Bethlehem, right? The biggest scandal in history. Because Satan has put all of these things in Jesus' path. He's come against him in so many ways. He's put religious leaders in place to come against Jesus. He's put demons in his way. And all through his life, Jesus goes through overcoming all these obstacles and defeating Satan time and time and time again, casting out demons, healing the sick, serving those in need. And we get to the very end and Satan goes, finally, I got him. I got the right religious leaders stuck in their own law to where they can't see the truth. And they've killed him. And Jesus is dead. It's over. Surprise! What other king in history raised from the dead? This is what our faith is founded upon. This is what makes all the difference in the world. Jesus overcame death. The sinless, spotless lamb gave himself, allowed himself to die for us, took our sin upon him, carried that weight, carried that burden. But then he overcame death. That is why we have faith. That is what brings hope. And that is the picture of a king. See, when I think about a king, that is the picture that's painted. A king brings hope. A king, his, his presence, is, there's anticipation, there's excitement as a king comes into town because you can't wait to see what's coming. There is hope that comes with a king. Yes, he commands loyalty and respect and all of those things, but it's because you give him great honor because you know that he is for you and he is leading you. And it is Jesus' power over death that gives us that kind of hope. We now have hope for eternal life if we choose to follow the king. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 22. I love this passage. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Listen to those words. Think about that. If our hope in Christ is only for this life, 
We are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. See, that is the picture of Christmas. That is the picture of the birth of Christ. It's not just him being born as a baby, but it is the new life that we are given because of his life, because of the suffering, because of his death, and because of the resurrection, because he was raised from the dead and overcame that power. Jesus' power over death is our hope in what seems often to be a hopeless world. He is our hope. And we have that hope for eternal life if we're following the King. Romans 8, Paul tells us that we are children of God. It also tells us that we are joint heirs with Christ, the sons and daughters of the King. Last week, Brian Stuyvesant was talking about us being peace carriers and what that looks like. And he talked about Jesus being the Prince of Peace and carrying peace into the world. And it looks so different than what we might think because when you think the word peace, I don't know about you, but for me, often it's that kind of warm, fuzzy, everything's going to be okay feeling. And you go, what's, you know, things can be chaotic around me, but I, I feel good. I've got peace. And that's not really the picture that he painted last week. Peace is that contrast of darkness and evil in the world. And he talks about how Jesus said that he came bringing a sword, and yet he was the symbol of peace. How do you do that? How do you carry a sword and be the symbol of peace? But it is that contrast that we see painted between light and darkness, between good and evil. That is the peace that Jesus brought. And when we are in relationship with him, when we have that hope, we understand that kind of peace. For me, it brings up this question. If we are sons and daughters of the king, if we are joint heirs with Christ, if we are children of God, are we carrying peace into the world around us? Are we carrying light into the darkness? Are you truly an heir? Are you living like an heir? to the kingdom of God? Have you committed your life and service to the king? See, our hope of eternal life, it starts here and now on earth. But it doesn't mean that things are going to be perfect. In fact, far from it. I mean, hope is not, it's not hope for better circumstances. It's not hope for getting the things that we want. It's not hope for a new house or a new car or all these presents or those kinds of things we celebrate around Christmas. It's not hope that our relationships are going to be perfect. It's not hope that everything in the world is going to make sense. I know many of you are carrying a heavy heart as you come in this morning because of the news that we've heard this week. The school shooting that happened. You look at something like that and you go, how is there hope? How is there hope in a moment like that? How do you explain that? And you can't. We ask why. And we'll never know the answer. No matter what they uncover, no matter what's investigated, no matter what anybody else says, we'll never know why. We won't understand. And we look at a situation like that and we go, how do you offer hope? And really all we can do is pray that God will extend hope and extend comfort to these families. And think about it. Who could understand better what they're going through than God? Who gave his son who willingly sacrificed his son's life. Does it make it any easier for those families? No. 
there's still loss that's there and there's still lack of understanding for us and there's still those questions that we wrestle through. But God has that ability to bring hope. He is that king who offers hope in the direst of circumstances. I think about Paul and the many things that he's written and you see over and over and over through all of his letters, Paul writes about this kind of hope. He writes about the hope that we have for eternal life. And he writes to, to explain the gospel to us where it's practical and we understand that. In many of Paul's letters, he writes from prison. And I'm not talking about prison like you and I may understand prison because prison in America today is not prison like Paul was in. Nobody's going out in the courtyard and playing basketball or lifting weights or watching TV or anything else. This is like the picture you see in some of these old movies where they're in the dungeon and they're being tortured. It's that kind of prison. It's nasty. It's ugly. It's not politically correct. There's nothing right about it. And that's the circumstances from which Paul is writing. And he's writing about the hope that we have because Jesus was raised from the dead and he has overcome death. And he's writing about the hope that we have in our lives and the power that we have because he overcame death. That is a picture of hope. And that picture of hope is what I see when I think of a good king. Think about it. What comes to your mind when you think about a good king? A good king leads and protects his kingdom. He's responsible for them. He owns that. He carries the weight of leading his kingdom. And he's responsible for them. He's responsible for their prosperity, for their success. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be rich or that they're going to have everything they want, but he's responsible to make sure they have what they need and they make it. The king owns that responsibility. He's worthy of respect. He's worthy of loyalty. A good king is someone that you want to give your life and service to. Demands that kind of admiration and honor from you. That's the picture of a good king. And that's the picture of hope that we have in Christ. That is the picture of the hope that he brings. A picture that makes us want to give our life and service to the King of Kings. No other king in history has ever raised from the dead. Why would we want to work for a king that can die when we can work for the eternal King of Kings? And so it leaves me with this question for you. Are you following the King of Kings? Just very simple. Are you following the King of Kings? Have you made that decision to commit your life and service to the King? It's a journey. Following Christ is a journey. And there's, there's process. And he, he changes you little by little as you go. But there comes that moment where you have to determine to cross the line and say, I'm committing my life to you. I'm going to follow you. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what happens in my life, no matter whether it seems good or bad, no matter whether I get the things I want or not, I'm going to serve you and I'm committing my life to you. Have you done that today? I want to take a moment and just pray with you. If you have not crossed that line this morning, if you have not committed your life to following Christ, this is for you. And I want you just to pray with me these words. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your amazing sacrifice. Not only did you give up everything in heaven and come to earth to live with us, but you modeled such a great example for us, and then you sacrificed your own life so that our sins could be forgiven. And so this morning we, 
we ask you for that forgiveness of our sins. We accept the free gift of grace that you have given us and the atonement that you have given for our sin. But more than that, God, we ask for the power to live in relationship with you, the power of the resurrection we see, the power that allowed you to overcome death. And we ask that you give us strength for the journey ahead, that we could live in relationship with you and be true heirs to your kingdom and give our lives in service to the King. Thank you for loving us. Amen. I think there's another question that we have to ask, because for a lot of you, you crossed that line a long time ago. You made that decision to follow the king, and you understand that perspective, and you, you understand the concept of grace, and you know what Jesus did for you, and you know about how he gave his life. But if you're anything like me, we often fall into that trap of having a picture of his grace painted over here, but living over here where we have no power in our life living over here where we feel like we just can't be good enough, we can't do it, and guess what? You're right. We can't. We can't on our own, and that's the trap that we fall into all the time. And so for some of us, it's just a matter of actually living a life that shows our loyalty to the king and asking for him to give us courage and give us strength to be able to walk day by day, not to be that secret disciple, not to be the one who's scared to talk about our God, scared to talk about our King, not the one who's scared to stand up for what we know is right, but living as one who has given our life and sacrificed to the King and is loyal to Him and walking day by day. So my question for you is, are you being loyal to the King of Kings? Is your life a reflection of the life that Christ lived? The life that He lived here on earth, His death for our sins, and his resurrection, that kind of power in your life. Does your life reflect that? And I want to just take a moment this morning to pray for that as well, that God would give us strength and courage to continue to live a life that shows our loyalty to the King of Kings and to live within that power and that strength. Let's pray. God, thank you that you did not stop the story at your death that you did not allow the story to stop with just the sacrifice that you made to make us right with the Father. But God, thank you that you overcame death and you showed your mighty power. And because of that, our faith has been extended and our faith has grown. And we can rest confident in the fact that it is you who gives us hope in life and it is you who gives us strength. It is you who gives us courage and allows us to truly live as heirs of the kingdom, as sons and daughters of God. Help us not to take that responsibility lightly as we learn to be in relationship with you, as we learn to express our love to you. Help us to also own that responsibility of being an heir to your kingdom and live our lives in such a way that is honoring to the King of Kings. Thank you for your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, it's Christmas season. It's, if you're anything like me, it's kind of hard to believe that we're already here. Christmas is just a little over a week away. But it's Christmas time, and as we celebrate Christmas, it's so easy for us to celebrate Jesus' birth. But I just challenge and encourage you to not just celebrate his birth, to, but to remember what his life stood for, to remember how he lived his life, 
We celebrate his birth, but then we thank him for the life that he lived and the sacrifice that he made to give his life for us so that our sins could be forgiven. And we remember the hope that we have because of the resurrection, because of the power that he displayed in those moments. And then we commit our lives in service to the King of Kings. I pray that that is what you will do this Christmas season. Would you stand as we worship this morning?